You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Will. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Music Legends. I'm your host, Chili Willie, a.k.a. the real rainy dog. Long time no see. Thanks for your patience with these last few episodes. Life caught up to me in the last couple months. But I'm back, and it feels damn good to be back. So where do we leave off? Well, Miles Davis had dropped off the face of the earth after a devastating car crash in 1972. It was the final nail in the coffin of his withering mental state. No one had seen or heard from Miles in quite a long time, but a curious eight-year-old Aaron Davis was on a mission. A mission his innocent mind couldn't quite understand, yet his legs kept moving. The loose change in his pocket kept jingling, and his father's home got closer with every step he took. Aaron's legs moved continuously as he shuffled the remaining change in his pocket and tried to devise a plan before he arrived at his father's doorstep. And then, out of nowhere, there it was. Miles' upper west side brownstone was unmemorable to the average eye, but unforgettable to Aaron. It shared its front wall with ten other townhomes that looked just like it. They all looked like cozy homes, some lined with Christmas lights, and others just a porch light. But Miles' house was dark and grim. The blinds shut, not a single light on inside or out. Aaron somehow mustered up enough courage to go closer to the door. And that is when he made a horrific discovery. Two stacks of newspapers sat beside the door, so high they practically made an unruly replica of the Twin Towers. But even more disturbing were the dead flowers. These are the kind of flowers that you might see on a tombstone, but they are laying right in front of Miles' door. Probably placed there by fans mourning the loss of Miles' musical presence, or maybe even worse. So Aaron stood there in a combination of shock and hunger. He wanted to leave, but his legs failed him. He wanted to stay, but he was too afraid to knock on the door. He stood there for five minutes, staring at the seemingly abandoned property. The tears that had been welling up for hours finally came to one big volcanic explosion of pain. But then, his cries were answered. The door flung open and out came Miles and a mysterious half-dressed woman. Get out of here, you stupid tramp. And that's it. Get out of here. He shouted in his raspy whisper as he threw the blouse and short jean shorts at the half-dressed woman. She snarled, picked up the dirty garments that happened to fall right on top of the dead flowers, and walked away holding up her middle finger over her shoulder in a careless manner as if that exact action was just part of the job. It seemed to frustrate Miles even more, to the point that 
he still hadn't even noticed his eight-year-old son was standing only six feet away. Learn to do it right, and maybe you'll get some- <coughs> He tried to shout, but he was interrupted by a coughing fit. Young Aaron would have probably been scared to death hearing his father coughing the way he was. Although, he also couldn't take his eyes off the half-dressed woman walking down the sidewalk. He wondered if she even knew she didn't have a shirt on. When Aaron finally turned around to look back at his father when the coughing had stopped, he was startled to see Miles looking right at him. Miles was only a few seconds into his own shock at that point. Although, it seemed like an eternity as he stood there and stared. The boy that stood in front of him was almost unrecognizable from the toddler he left behind. They both stood in disbelief and stared at each other for a few long moments. As Aaron looked at his father, he could see tears begin to well up in his eyes. Miles' ashy hand rose up, slowly wiping an ominous white powder from his face with a handkerchief from his pocket. Miles looked around as if he might see a paparazzi lurking in the bush, and then he slowly walked to his son, stepping on the dead flowers that were, by now, almost a pile of dust. Miles kneeled down in front of Aaron and gently dabbed the handkerchief on his cheek. It felt damp against Aaron's face, and it smelled weird. And suddenly, the tears had vanished, and so had any fear that lay within Aaron. So, what are you doing here, son? pleaded Miles. But silence was the only answer his son gave. <laughs> I see how it is. Well, you hungry? Still silence, but Aaron's tired and hungry body protested with all its might, and it came in the form of a slight shy head nod. Okay, well, then come on in. I'll get some dinner going for us. How's that sound? And of course, Aaron responded with silence. So Miles took his son's hand, and walked into the dark cave that was Miles' open front door. Aaron could smell the inside of the house before he could even see anything. It was so dark his eyes were still adjusting, but his nose, well, the only adjustment his nose needed was to be plugged. So with the hand that wasn't being held by the gentle, warm, and unexpected clasp of his father's hand, he took his index finger and his thumb and plugged his nose. But it immediately became unplugged when his hand flinched as he tripped on a mysterious object on the dark floor. His feet too had been adjusting to the wonky terrain of what should be hardwood floor. He tripped, squished, and stomped his way through tons of unknown matter of all sorts of textures, shapes, and sizes. For that brief moment that Aaron's nose was unplugged, he became aware that he'd never smelled anything like this. The smell was unexplainable and unrecognizable, especially to an impressionable eight-year-old nose. And even to a trained nose, this smell would be hard to decipher. Most would probably say it was a combination of things, 
rotting food mixed with marijuana, human sweat, and, weirdly, the smokiness of fire. Once Aaron's eyes became adjusted to the dark, he realized that he really did smell fire. A dim fire had been crackling away in the fireplace. It was currently serving as the only source of light in the entire apartment. Aaron suddenly got the chills. The fire was also serving as the only source of heat in the entire apartment. The fire was dim, but Aaron's surroundings started becoming clearer and brighter the closer they got to the fire. Aaron couldn't help it. He broke the silence. You know, if this was my room, Mom would whoop my ass. Suddenly, the hand that had been gently holding his hand vanished, and he felt a smack on the back of his head. They both stopped dead in their tracks. Miles turned around and pointed his long, ashy finger right in Aaron's face, as if he actually held some kind of authority over him. I'll whoop your ass myself if you keep talking like that, boy. There was a brief pause, but Miles wasn't going to accept silence for an answer this time around. You hear me, boy? rasped Miles. Aaron opened his mouth as if to apologize, but before he could get a single word out, he was interrupted by his father's deteriorating lungs. Miles coughed and wheezed for 30 seconds. He was bent down with his handkerchief over his mouth. Although Aaron felt bad for his father, he wasn't about to cry again. Instead, he put his hand on his father's back and gave him a gentle pat, although it didn't last long. Miles flinched and snapped back to reality. He stood up, slowly walked toward the kitchen, and flipped on the fluorescent light. The first thing he noticed was a giant pile of disgusting dirty dishes stacked up in the sink with little black dots moving around and above the pile. Presumably, roaches and flies. Aaron had never seen a sink or a kitchen so dirty. There were a lot of things in that apartment that Aaron had never seen before, and frankly, he didn't yet understand. Like the little white lines of powder scattered on the dusty coffee table. But even if he couldn't tell what those little white lines were, Aaron knew his father was in trouble when the coffee table had just about everything other than coffee on it. Something was off. No, everything was off. Aaron didn't understand, but one thing he did know was this was not how normal people lived. And he couldn't help but feel terrible for his dad. Meanwhile, Miles glared in the fridge, stroking the stubble that had grown on his chin. He was looking all over the place just to find something, anything that resembled food. There were socks on the upper shelves and beers in just about every other nook and cranny at the fridge. Hey, son, how old are you again? Miles shouted over the cool refrigerator's hum. Um, eight. Aaron replied and Miles cracked open a beer on the other side of the fridge where it had been severely damaged by probably a lot of bottles opening. Alright, more for me I guess. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. There was a whole lot more beer in that refrigerator. All for him. And just when he began to forget about finding some food, he remembered a jar of peanut butter he had stashed away. But what cabinet did he put it in? He had absolutely no clue. Aaron stood there and watched his father rummage through his own kitchen like he was committing a robbery. Aaron was curious and still very hungry.
Within just a few minutes, Aaron had managed to explore most of the smelly wasteland that was his father's apartment. When he saw the couch, it reminded him of how tired he was. Although, this couch was obviously not used for resting. It was stained and destroyed. Cigarettes stuck straight out of the fabric, burned right into it. Empty beer bottles stuck in between the cushions, along with who knows what else. Aaron really needed to sit down, but he wasn't about to sit there, that's for sure. It had been a long day to say the least. It truly felt like the longest day of his life, but it was just past 8 p.m. Suddenly, the rummaging stopped and new sounds emerged from the kitchen. When Aaron turned around, he saw that his dad managed to find a random assortment of edible items hanging around the kitchen and spread them all around the dining table in this giant pile. A box of half-eaten Ritz crackers that sat underneath a can of spaghetti sauce. And next to that, a few shriveled up potatoes that looked more like raisins. Lastly, but definitely not least, was a pristine, unopened package of ding-dongs, all sitting there eagerly awaiting to be eaten. Miles picked up his beer and chugged what was left, threw it on the floor and opened the fridge to repeat his nightly beer ritual. Miles did everything in an almost cartoon-esque way. There was something unsettling about that that made Aaron feel uneasy, yet comfortable at the same time. It made him giggle. So Aaron, of course, headed straight to the ding-dongs. He busted open the box like a Christmas present, pulled up a chair at the dining table, and started chowing down. Miles pulled out the chair on the other side of the table, kicked his feet up, and guzzled that new beer. Silence fell among the two again as they ate and watched each other. Although, they could only really see the corners of each other's faces around the mountain of edible odds and ends sitting on the dining room table. And that's when a strange feeling came across Miles, as he watched his son chow down on those ding-dongs like he'd been stranded in the Sahara for a week. He felt satisfied. He hadn't felt that way in a long time. He hadn't felt that way in so long that he forgot what he was feeling at all. And this satisfaction was only a feeling he got from music. That was until now. Is this what I've been missing? Is this what it feels like to be a father? He asked himself. And then, he thought about how his night would be normally completely different by this time. See, normally, he would have already snorted away who knows how many lines of coke, drank an uncanny amount of beers, and screwed as many prostitutes as humanly possible. But tonight, for some reason, he was at five beers, and five beers only. And somehow he felt better. Much better than the life that he banished himself into made him feel. And the only reason he felt this way was thanks to his son, who had paid him an unexpected visit, and just might have unknowingly helped his father break his never-ending cycle of self-destruction. Aaron may have been one of the only people who still truly cared about Miles. He was right across from him, chowing down on his sixth ding-dong. Miles didn't inquire about his son, how his day was, how his school was, any of those things that a normal father might do. But instead, he tried to catch up with him in a different way. When Miles noticed his son was eating his sixth and final ding-dong, that's when he grabbed his beer and guzzled the rest. 
and looked at Aaron and said, That makes six for me too. <laughs> Even though Aaron had no clue what he was talking about. Right then, they both looked at each other, smiled, and cracked up in a simultaneous giggle. Is this what I've been missing? Is this what it feels like to be a father? Those thoughts echoed in Miles' brain. But the reality was, he didn't know the first thing about being a father. Even if there was some kind of resemblance of fatherhood in that brief moment, Miles was just starting to feel the effects of those six beers. The night was still young, and he sure as hell wasn't about to waste it away with an eight-year-old. So he stumbled out of his chair and called air in a cab. But as the phone rang, those thoughts were slowly solidifying in his mind like wet cement. Is this what I've been missing? Is this what it feels like to be a father? cab door shut, but the window rolled open. The two looked at each other in solidarity for just a few moments, but they were a powerful few moments. At this point, Miles knew the routine. It was back to the silent treatment, so he spoke up. Come visit again soon, son. I would love. Miles paused. He almost said it. He was that close to saying the dreaded L word, but the shame he felt for being away from his son stopped it and he quickly caught himself and finished the sentence. I would like very much to see you. His soft whisper volume soothed the thick air between them. He was surprised by his father's caring and warm invitation to come back. Miles leaned in the car, gave the driver a crumpled up $50 bill from his pocket, and realized he didn't even know where his son lived. Miles nudged his son's shoulder. Come on, tell the man where you need to go, son. Aaron softly spoke the address and the wheels moved on. Miles took a deep breath and watched his son roll away, hopefully for not too long this time. Aaron couldn't help but stare. He looked helplessly out the back window, yearning and imagining what his life might be like if he just had a normal father. Miles could tell what his son was thinking as he stared through the glass. so. He just stuck one hand over his head, exposed his sweaty palm, and slowly waved as the yellow cab faded into the New York night. In the next few months, Miles waited. He waited for his son. And to pass the time, he drank and snorted endless lines of coke, sometimes with prostitutes who were either brave enough or addicted enough. And when he ran out of supplies, well, he would call his dealer and have more delivered straight to his door. This is what an average week looked like for Miles. His old habits only grew stronger and more powerful in solitude. Although, since his son's visit, he did acquire a couple new habits as well. One of those habits was, well, he would pick up the phone and dial the first four digits of Aaron's mother's phone number, only to abandon all hope after a half hour of debating with himself. We're sorry, your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number. Another habit, 
he would occasionally peek out the window, paranoid and anxious to see his son. But he would only see reporters and nosy fans at his door. As each night passed with the absence of his son, Miles fell deeper than he ever had into the dark realm he'd created for himself. His son never did pay another visit. He would often try, but never succeeded. See, his mother was keeping a tighter leash on him from now on. After all, the last time he paid his old man a visit, he came home at 9pm and reeked of a mysterious and horrible odor. Rightly so, it freaked her out. Meanwhile, Miles did have other guests over from time to time. Besides the drug dealers and hookers, there was the new president of Columbia Records, George Butler, who periodically came to bang on his door and beg him to get back into music. Sometimes, Miles would let him in. He had no intention of getting back into the music biz, but he always got a kick out of George's frantic begging. He would tease him and say something along the lines of, Maybe I'll get back into music. If you get me a full-time butler. And George would reply with something along the lines of, Listen, listen, I'm sure we can figure something out. Just hear me out this time. <laughs> Miles chuckled. He wasn't about to hear him out. Instead, he thought to himself about how George only wanted the money that would come with another Miles Davis record. And man, was he desperate. So, Miles concluded each of his visits with a, Get the hell out of my house, George. Sometimes his old bandmates would come by the house. They too would try to convince Miles to get back into music. They each even had their own tactics too. Some would bring a trumpet, which Miles would promptly slap to the floor. Others would get him even more drunk than he already was and just shoot the shit about the good old days. If Miles were in a good mood, his bandmates might even see a twinkle of hope in his eyes during one of these conversations. But eventually, he'd pass out on the couch in a heavy sleep leaving his bandmates feeling awkward and feeling sorry for him. Miles would stay like that for 13, sometimes 14 hours. It was 2 p.m. now. His bandmates were long gone, and he was still passed out, one arm dangling off the couch, clutching a bottle of Jack. The first ring didn't even phase Miles. He was still out cold. When the second ring came, he began twitching, slowly coming back from the dead. But by the fifth ring, he was rubbing his groggy eyes. Mm. Empty beer bottles clanked beneath his feet as he stretched his legs. He wasn't even close to awake yet. But he forced his hand up and smacked it down on the end of the table a few times, trying to locate the receiver. It was like a blind, feral beast investigating a mysterious sound. Finally, when he picked up the phone, an angelic young woman answered. Her name was Julie Coriel. She was scheduled to interview Miles for her upcoming book, Jazz Rock Fusion, The People, The Music. She'd interviewed over 50 musicians for the book, but she was dumbfounded when she had actually gotten an interview with the infamous and reclusive Miles Davis. And just as Julie was on the edge of freaking out from excitement, Miles was not exactly happy to hear her voice. Initially, there wasn't a chance in hell he was going to do any interviews. And then... There were no interviews for less than eight grand. And yet, here Miles was somehow, 
He'd been convinced to do it for a big fat zero. And the woman who convinced him to do it was an old friend named Elena Steinberg. But we'll talk about her more later. Miles found a crumpled up cigarette pack in his pocket, lit one up in his mouth and said, Okay, I'm ready. There was a few seconds of confused silence coming from the telephone before Julie replied, Pardon me, Mr. Davis. This is not the interview. The interview was actually scheduled for this morning at 10 a.m. out here in Connecticut. I was just calling to hopefully reschedule. Miles was surprised, but... Despite his current situation, his determination to prove and preserve his legacy had been sparked. And even if it meant leaving his apartment. Well, shit. I guess I'll be on my way over to Connecticut then. Once again, Julie was left dumbfounded. So that day, Miles drove out to her home in Norwalk, Connecticut. Nestled behind a beautifully designed gate like a work of art, he pulled up to a sort of Gatsby-esque old house. The interview took two hours, but within minutes of talking to Miles, Julie became concerned about Miles' health. Miles was hard to understand, more than he usually was. Julie had to pay close attention just to make out certain words. It became clear listening to him speak that his words actually hurt as they ushered out of his throat. It was equally a source of discomfort for her listening to it as it was for him. His voice wasn't the only distraction from the content, either. Miles stunk of seclusion, and he looked like some kind of ghoul. Yet, still sympathizing with her idol, Julie looked him dead in the eye as he talked, breaking eye contact only to scribble in her notepad. It's wild to think that this was the first time Miles had left his house in years. So, why now? Maybe. It was the same thing that drew his eyes to look out the window to check for his son every night. The potential of preserving his image, his legacy, his status as a father. But it was also the potential of something else altogether. Julie was drop-dead gorgeous, and seeing that Miles had left his house for the first time in years, well, I'm guessing he was in a pretty spontaneous mood that night. All right, everyone, that's the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I can't believe we're already eight episodes in. It's just a testament to how truly wild the life of Miles Davis really was. This episode's show notes will be pretty short and sweet. I'm not going to put any links to any articles or any videos in this episode because I feel like they might just give some spoilers away for the next episode, so I'm just going to put them in next episode. As always, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend or take a couple moments and write me a nice note in the review section of Apple Podcasts. It boosts the podcast up in the algorithm and basically helps more folks find out about music legends. Sharing is caring, folks. So with that said, I should be on a pretty consistent schedule with these last few episodes moving forward. So I'll catch y'all soon.
Peace.